Welcome to New Generation, an insider's guide to a clean energy future. I'm Elena Mannion. I'm a senior research analyst at American Efficient, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pete Curtis, who's the CEO of American Efficient. Hi, Pete. Hi, Elena. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, Commissioner Tremaine Phillips. Commissioner Phillips was appointed by Governor Whitmer to the Michigan Public Service Commission in 2019, and his term runs through July 2025. Prior to his appointment as a commissioner, he worked in public and private sector roles to accelerate the nation's transition to clean, renewable, and reliable energy resources. Most recently, he served as the director of the Cincinnati 2030 District. He also worked with Empower Saves, Prima Civitas Foundation, the State of Michigan's Department of Energy, Labor, and Economic Growth, and the Michigan Environmental Council. He also served on the Obama administration's White House Council on environmental quality, working to advance climate and clean energy policies, most notably the Clean Power Plan. Commissioner Phillips served on several boards, including the Board of Directors of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, NARUC, where he also serves on its Electric Vehicles State Working Group, the Committee on Critical Infrastructure, as well as the Chair of the Committee on Telecommunications. He's a graduate of Michigan State University and The Ohio State University, where he received his law degree and a master's in public policy and management. Welcome to New Generation, Commissioner. Welcome, and and thank you for that very generous introduction. And I know uh, my fellow Buckeyes will be thankful that you said the V in front of The Ohio State University. It's very important. I almost edited it out, and then I looked it up (laughs) to make sure, and I and I remember like when NFL players are introducing themselves, they always say the Ohio State, but everybody that goes to Ohio State says that. It's true. It's something that is kind of ingrained in you uh, when you walk on campus there. So again, much, much appreciated. (laughs) Well, um, I'm glad I did it correctly. Uh, As we kick off the conversation today, it'd probably be helpful if you would give us a quick overview of the role of the Michigan Public Service Commission. Every commission works a little bit differently, so we'd love to hear specifically how it works in Michigan. What's the mandate? And then what's a typical day in the life of, of you and your fellow commissioners? Certainly, I can, I can give just a, a brief overview of the, the Michigan Public Service Commission. So I was appointed by Governor Gretchen Whitmer in uh, the fall of 2019, so it's been a very eventful three plus years. And we are the chief regulatory agency for primarily a trio of industries. So the chief regulatory body for the natural gas, electricity, and to a smaller extent, the telecommunications industries. Uh, We also regulate the siting of transmission infrastructure, oil and gas pipelines. And in the past, we have even had extended jurisdiction over the regulation of ferries, over commercial trucking. We actually have trucking parking spaces still in the back part of our office. And so it is a very wide and vast scope in terms of the energy and telecommunications infrastructure that we do have regulatory jurisdiction and and authority over. And as you mentioned, each commission across the country operates a bit differently. We in Michigan have a commission body that is just made up of three commissioners. There are some commissions that have many more, up to seven, I know, in some jurisdictions. 
But I always joke, and maybe this is because I'm a big NBA fan and I grew up in the same region as LeBron James. Um, but we, we do have a very tight camaraderie across these different commissions in different states that we all are facing similar issues, even though they're in different hues, orientations, but similar issues across the country. And in that there are less commissioners in the U.S. Uh, than there are players in the NBA. So it is a really tight community. It is uh, certainly a, an honor to, to uh, have the ability to impact the decisions, the development of infrastructure, the, the economic development opportunities and prosperity of a state of uh, 10 million uh, residents. And really, we couldn't do this job, and you can ask any commissioner around the country, but we couldn't do this job without uh, the help of our employees, our staff within our respective commissions. You know, we have 170 engineers, economists, attorneys, accountants, and of many other disciplines who are the ones that really help us to uh, evaluate and investigate and regulate the industries that, that we have authority over. And just to give you a picture of what last year looked like for us, we issued over uh, 510 orders at our commission, including our largest order, at least on record, our, our a, a historical record that, that we can look back towards. So that was a uh, rate case for one of our electric, electric utilities that was uh, several hundred pages long. And we also responded to over 10,000 customer complaints. So that's customer complaints in both the electricity, natural gas arenas, as well as in the telecom space as well. So certainly the three of us individually could not do that alone. And it, it is the heavy lift of our entire organization and our great team of individuals who have had to respond to a lot of turmoil and, and crises with us over the last three plus years. Are you guys allowed to take vacations? Three people, 500, 500 orders? I don't see how you ever get a day off. Well, th there are there are vacations, but uh, we, we have uh, the bat phone that, you know, you always have to keep on. Because no matter where you are or, or what you're doing with your family or a significant other, uh, the clouds keep rolling in, uh, the storms uh, and the meteorological factors don't stop because you are on vacation and, and incidents do happen. You know, since I've, I've been here at the commission, we've gone through the COVID pandemic where our staff in, in several weeks time had to transition like many others to being fully remote. Uh, we've gone through two pretty severe storm seasons, the summer storm season of 2021 and of 2022, where, you know, both of those seasons, we had hundreds of thousands of customers without electric service out of time. And, and uh, you know, we're continuing to see an increase of the severity and the frequency of those storm events due in part to abrupt climate change. And then we're also seeing, you know, this influx of federal investment for broadband, for electric vehicles, for distribution infrastructure. And, and we're kind of one of the linchpin agencies uh, for that work as well. So it, it's been, you know, an interesting and always keeps you on your toes in terms of the work and, and the purview uh, that we have the honor to work with. Well, you've had a very interesting career working in the public and private sector um, and it seems like you've done a lot and risen very quickly. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about your career journey? What led you to becoming a commissioner? And what's your advice for somebody just starting out? Yeah, I had someone joke with me um, several years back that I'm, I'm playing uh, professional career bingo and trying to hit all these different sectors. <laughs> but I, I, um, you know, one thing that drives me is intellectual curiosity, as well as looking and seeking out roles that allow me to earn a living, of course, for, for myself and for my family, but also allow for me to do some good in the world, to leave some imprint on the areas or the industries that, that I work in. You know, I'm, I think we're all very fortunate to live in this time of prosperity and of abundance. Uh, and I know that I am in, in particularly in a position of, of, of comfort in terms of uh, my family and, and the, the resources that we have. So I do see it as an obligation for me to uh, try and, while I am I'm here and in these roles, to uh, uh, help and assist those who just by mere fate and circumstance are, are born in situations of poverty or oppression or pollution and other factors beyond their control that create barriers to their ability to aspire and, and to innovate. So th th that has always been a guiding function for me and my professional and academic work. It's something that I try and instill in my children. And, you know, I, I took this pivot to working in energy. I think I mentioned this to you during our kind of briefing session, but I wanted to become a meteorologist. Whether that was a TV weatherman or, or working behind the scenes, it all was good to me. I, and I still do have uh, a huge passion for an interest and hobby and meteorology weather. But that's how I learned about the impacts of climate change was through that avenue. And, and uh, once I learned kind of the steps that it would take to become a TV weatherman, it became a little less appealing for me. And uh, I actually stumbled into and went through some academic transitions like many of us do into a academic major of environmental economics and policy. And I, I knew just in terms of what I had researched and what I was interested in and driving towards that this encompassed kind of all those intellectual curiosities under under one umbrella. Um, and I still remember coming home to my parents and saying, hey, I'm going to switch my major. I was in civil engineering. My father's an electrical engineer by training. And uh, they said, okay, that, you know, we trust you. That sounds good. But, you know, what the hell is that? And I couldn't exactly answer it at that time, but I knew that the impacts of abrupt climate change on regions, on our nation, on the world, were not going away and were only going to accelerate. I, I saw the early stages of momentum of the clean energy transition and, and knew that there would need to be more people of color in that industry. Uh, that there needed to just be more young folks that are interested in driving that transition. And I'm really glad I made that bet in terms of my career because it has just been the most fulfilling and um, stimulating for that intellectual curiosity that continues to kind of drive my work going forward. Well, you, as we've talked about uh, uh, before, Tremaine, you, you, you know, you happen to live and, and serve in a state that's very near and dear to my heart. My, my grandparents met at the University of Michigan. When I think of Michigan, I think about 
Ann Arbor and Zingerman's Deli and M22 Scenic Highway and all these fun things. I don't think about the cold in the winter, by the way. That just goes by the wayside. <laughs> but but uh, we also think about it, and, and most people think about it as, as the birthplace of the automotive industry um, and, and, and the epicenter still of the automotive industry. And obviously that has uh, ramifications for the role that you have and, and the work that you all do. What, what are some of the interesting developments that you guys see and, and, and work on? You know, we, we read about everything from battery manufacturing to even piloting, if I'm saying this right, highway induction charging for freight vehicles. Um, so you guys are in the middle of all the fun stuff. I, I could certainly, and I know a lot of Michiganders, we could talk the rest of the podcast about cars, right? Uh, my, my father, as I said, was an electrical engineer. He started off his career in the auto industry, you know, graduated from an HBCU, North Carolina A&T, so Aggie pride for, for those out there listening. And his first uh, externship was with General Motors. And, you know, he spent 40 years in the industry working with Packard, GM, and then finally with Delphi. And so I, I recognize intently the opportunities that a career in the auto industry can afford a family. My father grew up in very rural North Carolina in a small agricultural community of 2,500 folks and two in one generation have his son be a commissioner in the state of Michigan. I mean, it's it's awe-inspiring for me. And, and that opportunity has been afforded to me and has been afforded to our family in large part due to him being able to have this long, prosperous career in the, in the auto sector. So it is, it is imminently important to us. Uh, certainly, we see ourselves as continuing to be a key cog in the wheel of Oh boy, that's a terrible pun. I, you can't help it, right? Uh, of, driving, <laughs> of driving uh, the transition to vehicle electrification. I also am not, uh, I don't want to be tone deaf to the, to the risk that this transition also poses to our industry, that the auto sector in Michigan is geared or has historically been geared around the production of ice of internal combustion engine centered vehicles. And so in order to transition to electrification, there are a lot more national players in that game, global companies uh, in that game. And so we have to continue to innovate, uh, to provide new economic incentives, to create new segments of academically rich young folks who are able to be trained up and to, to fit into this new industry and to innovate, we have to continue to keep pace here in Michigan in order to have ourselves be a center or what I think will be one of the centers. There's going to be many centers in the vehicle uh, electrification industry, but be a center of this transition. And I think we're, we're well on our way there. If you've kind of seen the headlines recently, in terms of the, the investments or the continued investments from uh, Stellantis, from Ford, from GM and their battery and electric vehicle manufacturing. You know, the announcements over the last year or several years 
in the state due in large part to kind of the holistic thinking around this from the uh, Whitmer administration. You know, there's billions of dollars of investment coming to the state from those traditional manufacturers, but then we're also getting new battery manufacturers that are staking their claim, planting their headquarters, are expanding their operations here in the state of Michigan. One example is a, a company out of China called Goshen, which is investing $2.3 billion in a, a battery components manufacturing facility in Big Rapids. You know, that's just one of many examples of these industries. And I think we have many more companies that we're seeking to attract the to the state in the near future as well. The, the other thing I'll mention is that in regards to mobility, vehicle electrification is just one component of that. And so the state of Michigan, the Whitmer administration several years ago created a mobility office and was very intentional about having that word be mobility to encompass not only vehicle electrification, but vehicle automation and connectivity, transit vehicles, freight, as well as drone and uh, UAV development. So, you know, in the state of Michigan, we have projects and pilots out there right now. One is uh, the development of drone corridors. So we have right now the first cross-border, international border uh, drone corridor in the country. So there are drones that right now flying between Ontario and the city of Detroit delivering products and services. We also have another drone corridor between two hospital systems in Southeast Michigan, again, delivering supplies, which was really kind of a instrumental pilot during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're also looking at new opportunities for technologies. Like you mentioned, in the Detroit area, there is a pilot, uh, which will be one of the first in the world incorporating inductive charging into our roadways. So how can we think about lessening the strain of charging on our distribution, our electrical system? It's by looking at ways that we can have charging that's more diffused. And if you can have charging that's not just centered on one location and, and crushing one distribution or substation, but have it actually built into the roadways, that is one potential technology by which we can do that. Another mobility item is looking at horizontal and, and vertical lift rockets and actually delivering products and satellites via uh, those possibilities as well. And we're looking at uh, launch sites in both the lower and the upper peninsula uh, for those opportunities as well. So mobility is, <laughs> is everything from the ground to the lower and upper orbits. And, uh, and I, I think this administration, by taking that holistic look, is, is really setting Michigan in, in the right place in terms of getting that investment uh, going into the, the next decade. Well, I have to admit that when I thought you were going to expand on mobility, I thought you were going to go like to bicycles or electric. And I didn't think rockets were in the <laughs> were what you were going to talk about. That's, that's pretty amazing. By the way, where did your dad grow up in rural North Carolina? I grew up in rural North Carolina. So he grew up uh, in a small town called Maple Hill, which is by Camp Lejeune. I know exactly so, where it is. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just just west of Camp Lejeune, and and so an area that you know has uh, a number of challenges, but also uh, opportunities there in terms of uh, renewable energy infrastructure and some other things as well. 
Yeah, we had family from Maysville, which is not terribly yes. far away. One stop sign, flat cornfields everywhere. Um, lots of room for solar panels. <laughs> <laughs> lots of room for solar. I think Maple Hill at least has one stoplight. So <laughs> we do have that. Well, most of Michigan's in, in MISO, and there's been a significant number of coal generation plants that have been t- retired over the last few years. This is great from a carbon reduction standpoint. However, there are concerns that, especially in central and northern regions of MISO, that there might not be enough capacity in coming years to meet demand. Uh, I think Zone 7 in Michigan is one of these affected areas. Um, How is the commission thinking about that? And how does the commission cooperate with MISO on issues like this? Yes, and and we are in Michigan, as you mentioned, a part of actually two retail energy markets. So we're largely a part of MISO, but we also have a small uh, segment of Indiana Michigan Power, which is a subsidiary of AEP. So around 130 plus customers that are in the PJM RTO. So that gives us a nice kind of window and also uh, an ability to influence things that are, are going on there in PGM as well. And uh, as everyone is very aware, very aware of, the issue of resource adequacy during the energy transition and with the continued, again, acceleration of extreme weather events, the issue of resource adequacy is impacting all RTOs. We had rolling blackouts and calls for energy demand reductions in the PJM service territory over the Christmas holiday. It was giving us a lot of heartburn with the the polar vortex that came in and really kind of strained all of our systems. We saw what happened in Texas and with ERCOT only a short while ago with their winter storm event. And MISO has had issues in terms of resource adequacy in recent years as well. So this is a pressing issue for all of us. It is top of mind, kind of one of those keystone areas of interest and consideration for the commission here in Michigan. You know, if we're looking at the transition of, as you said, Elena, of coal to other sources of energy generation, I, I don't I don't think folks truly appreciate how fast this transition is taking place. Just to provide one example. So in 2007, 70% of Michigan's electricity generation was derived from coal power facilities. And in 2020, we were at just 22%. So, you know, that just shows, and this is happening across many states at at the speed of, of decarbonization and and taking offline our, our coal power facilities. After 2030 here in Michigan, just if you look at the integrated resource planning cases put forth by our investor-owned utilities, these are the five, 10, 15-year plans for how they intend to meet energy demand for their customers. We likely will have one, if not zero, coal-fired power plants from our investor-owned utilities operating here in the state. So. Yes, very good from a climate standpoint, uh, very good from a human and environmental health standpoint. But there are these considerations, considerations for resource adequacy 
considerations for economic viability and health of these communities. For some of these communities, these power plants can be 50 plus percent of their tax base. So what is the glide path? What is the off-ramp for those communities when those facilities shut down? And then for the employees that that work in those facilities as well. I, I, I always tell those in the environmental community that you have to go into these power plants. You have to understand how critical they have been to the prosperity of this country and how devoted and just how expertly trained these professionals are who work in these facilities. And so I always want to, you know, really be attentive about or intentional about how we transition those workers from those facilities to new opportunities, whether in the clean energy sector or in other sectors as well. But Again, getting back to your primary question about the retail energy markets, I think one way that we can boost that resource adequacy in our RTOs is by really uh, marshalling distributed generation resources and by marshalling demand response and energy efficiency. You know, that those are areas where we're still seeing our RTOs kind of lack in the procedures and the financial and other mechanisms to really figure out how to value and to integrate those resources into the resource adequacy planning processes. Uh, Something that we did here recently in Michigan is that during our last commission meeting of 2022, we actually opened up our state to aggregators of demand response uh, resources. So allowing for demand response aggregators, those who will, for instance, aggregate the capacity of a Walmart, a Meyer, and of other large industries to be able to aggregate their demand response potential and to be able to offer that to MISO or offer that to RTOs. We think that this, you know, has the ability to provide an additional tens, if not several hundred uh, megawatts of capacity to our state. And this is just one of those, you know, really critical opportunities for looking at this, you know, opportunities are just going to be much more distributed going forward. We are not just going to be recipients of electrons any longer as individual customers, as individual business owners, but each of us is going to have a role and responsibility of keeping the grid secure and responsive and viable as we kind of face these looming threats of climate change and and other things. And so looking at the opportunities for distributed generation, demand response, and energy efficiency, I think is a really key, key part of that. Yeah. What, you know, what, what, one of the things we try to talk about a lot is uh, it would be one thing to thread the needle on all these things you just mentioned if demand were remaining steady or slightly dropping as it has in the Midwest for the last 10 years. But the other inflection point is that demand is going to start going up pretty rapidly as, as we convert to electric transportation. So it's not only, not only cleaning the system, but fortifying it for even more demand, which is almost a, a, a crippling set of objectives when, when you really think about all that has to be done. But it has to be done. It does. And we don't have the luxury of siloing off any of these problems, but we have to face the issues of resource adequacy, the issues of climate change, of environmental justice and equity, and then also of customer affordability. So how do you 
invest in all this necessary technology and infrastructure while also ensuring that we can have rates be affordable, especially in these times of rising global and national inflation. It's not an easy task, but (laughs) we do have, again, this cohort of commissioners across the country, as well as our respective staffs and the many stakeholders and interveners in our cases and proceedings to help us get to this path. And, and there's no other choice. We, we have to figure out how to thread the needle here. Indeed. Well, this, is, this has been a fantastic conversation, Tremaine. We, we, we uh, greatly appreciate your time and, and thank you f- for your service with the commission. Um, you guys have perhaps the most challenging, but, but also probably the most exciting set of objectives and, and initiatives ahead of you. And to do it with just three commissioners still, still dumbfounds me. Um, I was, when I used to work with the commission up there when I was with OPower, and I just couldn't wrap my head around <laughs> there, were, there were only three, three commissioners. The only other state I knew that had three, I think at the time was Virginia, and there may be a couple more, but, but um, you, you guys have incredibly important role and, and thank you for, for serving. One of the things we always ask our guests is any recommendations they might have, especially for younger folks that are entering their career or thinking about entering their career in, in clean tech, books, articles, uh, things that they might find helpful as they're, as they're starting that journey. Well, I, thank you again for offering me the, the opportunity to speak with you all and, and to provide my insight on things. Uh, hopefully that is worthwhile. I'm just glad that someone is actually interested in the work that we do. It's certainly, I, I don't get to talk about these things much over Christmas or over the holidays. I don't get prompted questions about myself all that often. But yeah, for, for folks uh, looking to just enter the, the industry one book I would suggest, and I read it, you know, um, I think actually during the early months of me taking on this this role, but it's a book called The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future, but it provides a really good context and foundational understanding of what we call the, the largest piece of technology uh, in the country, our national electricity grid and it provides a good historical foundation for how this all came about from a business model standpoint, and then kind of the complexity of how do we contend with the myriad of problems, whether it be climate change or cyber or physical uh, attacks on the grid, et cetera, as, as we move forward uh, in this clean energy transition. I'm a big listener to podcasts. And so I'm I'm certainly happy and and glad to be a part of this. Several podcasts that I'd suggest for the energy-focused area, The Energy Transition by Chris Nelder, I think is is really just top-notch for getting an overview of of different areas in the energy industry. Plain English by Derek Thompson. And then one that it is a paid-for podcast, but I I have to suggest it. I've been very interested and intrigued by the um, the horrific Russia and Ukraine conflict. I think it is fascinating for those in the energy sector. So there is a, a podcast called the, the Russian Contingency by Michael Kaufman and does a really good analysis of kind of the situation going on there from a military, economic, and geopolitical standpoint. But I just think that this conflict is... Uh, it's so important for us thinking about what the impacts are for future conflicts on our energy systems. 
and I think it really should encourage us to continue to try and push for having more distributed, decarbonized, resilient, community-based energy systems so that we can be more hardened to, you know, today it, it may be Russia, but tomorrow it could certainly be China. And, and they have certainly a lot of leverage on the U.S. and on the West in regards to critical minerals and materials, especially those that are really important and key to vehicle electrification. So we need to think about how to build more community-centric economic models to harden ourselves to that. And the final thing I'll mention is uh, chat GPT, which I know <laughs> has been a lot in the news right now. I would, I have an icon for the site on, on my phone. I use it now almost as much as Google, I think is a tool that everyone should just understand and, and begin to incorporate in our daily life because artificial intelligence, I think is going to be incredibly important to the clean energy transition and important just to our overall prosperity. I, yes, it's going to come with consequences and, and issues that we have to confront, but it's just a really fun and cool tool and, and everyone should learn how to integrate it into their life uh, as much as possible. Yeah. Well, you're on the cutting edge because I have to say, I didn't know anything reasonably about this app other than maybe just reading a few snippets, but over the holidays, I have two nephews that are uh, students at the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, one is a data analytics major and one is a computer science major. These are really uh, dumb kids, and and they they could not stop talking about this this app. And and really, the I think the company that runs it is called Open Analytics, if I remember right. And Open just, AI. Open yeah. AI, yeah. And 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 the other things that they have coming, uh, not just this chat application, but. Um, and then I, as subsequently, one of my brother-in-law is a math professor, and he was talking about it from the other side, about what a challenge it will be, because kids could turn in all sorts of assignments just by asking for the answer. And, and it, it, was, it was just a very fascinating conversation. But they were, these kids, I'll call them kids, young adults, were just over the top excited about how it will accelerate the work that they want to do, because it gets them, even if it doesn't. It, it, the way they described it is like, if there's 20 steps to solving something, this can get you to step 14, and you can spend all of your time on the final six steps, uh, which which is pretty amazing. And that's how I see it, is it is a tool. It is a tool that I think in the future, like folks used to put on their resume, I'm proficient in Word, Excel, it'll soon be I'm also proficient in these you know machine learning algorithms, X. Or why, uh, and so yeah, I think it's it's not about generating that that full output or research paper. It's going to be a cat and mouse game. Soon we will have artificial intelligence working in the other direction to snuff out uh, those essays that are prompted uh, through these tools. But it's about how can we minimize or lessen some of the steps. I had it help me write a press release last week. So it is a really effective tool. We, we Lauren uh, on our team who you've met told us the same thing, that she, she did the press release thing and was amazed at how efficient it is. All right. Well, thank you again so much for joining us, Commissioner. It is, I'm going to have to follow up on the lift rockets because I was not expecting to hear that either. I'm going to wrap up by saying if you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. Email us at newgeneration at americanefficient.com 
or send us a tweet at Make US Efficient. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. Listener.